0: Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, we have a a really very important topic to discuss today, and uh, um, the great privilege, really, to have Dr. Helen Joyce uh, to come and talk to us about it. Helen is uh, an international editor of The Economist magazine. Uh, she's Irish. She studied at Trinity College, Dublin, and then at Cambridge. And for a number of years, uh, she was involved in um, public understanding of mathematics and statistics. So she does know whereof she speaks. Um, she spent some years in uh, Brazil as the uh, Brazil editor, the Bureau Chief of The Economist there. Uh, and since uh, getting back into the, uh, the rest of the world as an international editor for The Economist, uh, she's been, of course, covering a large number of topics. She was education correspondent The Economist for a while also. But just recently, with some colleagues at The Economist, she wrote a very important editorial uh, uh, positioning The Economist in favour of physician-assisted or doctor-assisted dying. Um, Now I have to declare an interest. Uh, I am myself a a patron of Dignity and Dying, which is an organisation in the UK um, that used to be called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, and was involved in uh, drafting a a bill for Parliament which is an ancestor of the bill that's before the UK Parliament at the moment, and just about to be discussed there too. This is a very, very emotive issue it 's a very important one, and I know that people who've had experience of loved ones who have suffered tremendously at the end of lives will have competing views, different views about what should be done, what should be allowed, what we should accord to people who have a, a desire, make a choice about what happens to them at the end of their lives. so there will be strong feelings in the audience I know uh, and I think when we get to the uh, question and answer uh, session after Helen has spoken, um, we may uh, see that registered in the kinds of questions that are asked. But could I please ask you, Uh, one thing, and that is to remember what you've just seen about asking questions. It's very tempting, especially with an emotional subject like this, to report personal experiences and to talk at some length about the reasons why one holds the view that one does. But this is an opportunity to put to the test uh, an argument in favour of assisted dying. Uh, So um, please, please do take that opportunity. So my very great pleasure indeed to introduce to you Dr. Helen Joyce.
1: The Economist magazine was founded in 1843, and it was founded to campaign on a single issue, which was to repeal the corn laws, which was a set of laws at the time that kept uh, grain out of the country and kept prices high for local suppliers. And three years later, those laws were repealed, and we didn't just shut up shop and go and do something else. The magazine kept going, and it kept campaigning. So in the last 20-25 years, just to pick out a few subjects that we've campaigned on, uh, we uh, campaigned for gay marriage well before anyone else was saying this. We put this on our cover in the 1990s. Um, We are still campaigning to decriminalise prostitution and to decriminalise the taking of all uh, illegal drugs. These is a sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the things that we care about, and I bring out these ones particularly because there are some common themes. The first is this idea that we campaign. People often say, you know, why do you cover the things that you do, and why do you argue for these things? You're called The Economist. I suppose it's a confusing name. They think that we're going to just report on economics. But actually, we were set up to campaign. <laughs> A second reason that I wanted to highlight these particular issues to you was to point out that things can change really very, very fast sometimes from what's the received wisdom. So when I started The Economist 10 years ago, I don't think anyone really except us was arguing for drugs to be decriminalised except a few fringe groups. We've nearly won that argument now. Marijuana being decriminalised in America, the home of the war on drugs. And people don't no longer think that it's a ridiculous, far out idea. Things can change very, very fast. The editorial we wrote in the 1990s, our first editorial on gay marriage, was written by a gay colleague. And he uh, said at the time, and he wrote, that he was arguing for future generations. He didn't think that he would ever have the chance to marry the man he loved himself. He's married now. And so things can change so fast. Well, what about what we're talking about here today? We got a new editor in February, as Annie Minton Beddoes took over. She's our first female editor. And one of her decisions as editor was to renew this focus on campaigns. And the subject she chose for her first campaign was Doctor Assisted Dying. Why? Well, it fits with our liberal values. That's the thread that runs through all these examples I gave you. We're a liberal newspaper in the old-fashioned sense of meaning that people should be allowed to do what they want unless we have a rather good reason to stop them. And that good reason might be that they impinge on other people's freedom to do what they want, or that there's some very important public good or general good that stopping them is essential to allow that good thing to happen. But if we don't have a good reason, then we're not going to stop them. Um, Another reason is that there's a lot going on. I know here in Australia that there are people, there are politicians who are campaigning to introduce assisted dying. You're not alone in this. There are very live campaigns in the UK where we're based, in Canada, in many American states, and in several European countries as well. So it's of the moment, and we are a newspaper, so reporting on what's going on is important to us. Another reason is that's a chance for us to have influence. It really matters. It's a subject that matters, and it's something that, where, where there's change is possible right now. And of course, with demography being what it is, as we all grow older, it's becoming an even more important issue for even larger numbers of people. So what are we talking about here? Assisted dying. It's an umbrella term that we're using to cover two things that uh, are given different names and that some people feel are rather different from each other morally. We don't particularly, but anyway. One of them is assisted suicide. So where you kill yourself with help from somebody, presumably a doctor, and that help generally involves writing you a prescription. And the other one is what's called voluntary euthanasia. That word voluntary is essential. So involuntary euthanasia is what the Nazis did, killing people who didn't want to be killed. Voluntary euthanasia is killing somebody who has asked you to do so. So in general, that would be the doctor giving you the drug, maybe maybe intravenously. I don't see a big moral distinction between these two, but as I'll explain, some countries' legal systems do see a big distinction. If we go back not even very long, suicide itself was illegal in most places. And whenever I say this to people, people say, well, what could the possible penalty be? (laughs) Well, The fact is you could try to kill yourself and fail and in some places you would be prosecuted for that and the penalties might include having all your possessions taken from you. Or indeed if you did manage to kill yourself that your your possessions would become forfeit. It's only in the 1990s that in my own country, Ireland, uh, suicide was decriminalised. There hadn't been a prosecution for ages before that but it was still on the books. It was only decriminalised last year in India and it's still illegal in Singapore. Well, when countries uh, decriminalised suicide, uh, many of them introduced a new offence, and that was the offence of assisting a suicide. It's a slightly strange offence because it's generally not illegal to help someone to do something that it's legal for them to do themselves. I can't think of another example, actually. Uh, What the thinking, I suppose, was is that, Most people who are considering suicide are not really themselves at the time. They are maybe not a sound mind, they may be depressed, and that the appropriate reaction isn't to help them, it's to give them medical care, maybe to get them into counselling, maybe to get them antidepressants, maybe to at least try and get them to slow down and think. There's also the worry that there could be undue pressure, for example, from people who might want to get uh, a legacy or that it might be that suicide, assisting a suicide, was really a cover for murder, that this is not what it looks like being. But one country that had very vague uh, rules about assisted suicide is Switzerland. So when they decriminalised suicide in 1942, they brought in a very, very small restriction on assisting a suicide. They just said that it was illegal to assist a suicide for selfish motives, essentially to get a legacy. And some Swiss doctors, fairly shortly afterwards, started to help some people to die. And in the 1990s, probably the most famous uh, clinic that has anything to do with assisted suicide, Dignitas, started to accept foreigners uh, to come to Switzerland and uh, get get help to die. And since then, since 1998, I think it is that they were founded, they've helped over 1,700 foreigners from more than 40 countries uh, to commit suicide. The next uh, development, if we look back through the history of the assisted dying movement, was in Oregon, the American state of Oregon. So in 1997, a law came into force there that allowed doctor-assisted dying, specifically suicide, uh, voluntary euthanasia is still illegal there, um, in certain rather tightly controlled circumstances. So the person who wants to die must be less than six months from death. That must be confirmed by two doctors, They're terminally ill people. They have to be uh, very carefully screened to make sure that they are of sound mind and that this decision is a a fixed decision. And then they will be given a prescription of uh, lethal drugs that they may take themselves. So since then, since 1997, only about 1,400 prescriptions have been written in that time. And only two-thirds of the people who got... Uh, these lethal prescriptions actually took them so a very small number of people have actually used that law several other american states have similar legislation now uh, and others are considering it so california just in the last few days uh, a bill that's modeled on the assisted dying uh, law of oregon that law has progressed further through their um, legal system i don't know if it'll come into force it's they've tried several times by now and some other states are thinking of a similar thing now, in the Netherlands, since the 1970s, even though assisting a suicide has been illegal there, they have had a sort of a strange approach, which is very Dutch, which is that even though it's illegal, they're going to tolerate it. LAUGHTER this is exactly what they did with marijuana, by the way. It was illegal but tolerated there for decades before they actually changed the law. So there were, there were a lot of campaigning doctors who tested the boundaries of what was legal, and then in 2002, they finally actually wrote a law. And their law goes an awful lot further than Oregon's does. Um, for a start, you don't actually have to be terminally ill. You may be suffering uh, in other ways. Um, you also you don't have to be able to take the medicine yourself in Oregon, you do. And interestingly, the large majority of people using the law in the Netherlands ask the doctor to give them the drug intravenously rather than taking the medicine themselves. Belgium introduced a very similar law the following year, and it's moved very fast to extend the boundaries even further than the Netherlands has. Last year, they they actually abolished the lower age limit entirely. So now there is no one who's too young for this law to apply to them. So what do we know now? We've, we've had assisted dying laws of different sorts on the books in several different countries for up to 20 years, and in Switzerland's case, much longer. The first thing to say is that it's not very much used. So as I said, in Oregon, only about 1,000 people have taken this sort of drugs in the 20 years nearly since the law was passed. And since it was meant to be something that was helping people to die, if that's what they wanted, that's really a rather small number and suggests that perhaps the their law is ra- rather overly tightly defined. In Belgium, so Belgium's a country of two parts. There's a French-speaking part and a Dutch-speaking part, and the Dutch-speaking part is culturally much more similar to the Netherlands. In that part of Belgium, actually 5% of deaths are now assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia. I've heard this number quoted as if it's really rather large. I don't think it is. I mean, dying is something that we all do. And for most of us, the end is not very sudden. So 5% doesn't strike me as something that you w- would feel, you know, if you decided that this is a, an okay way to allow people to die, do you think 5% is a lot? But I'd be interested in hearing what you think. The next thing is that it's mostly about terminal cancer. Even in the Netherlands and in Belgium where the law is open in fr- to people who aren't even actually terminally ill, it's generally about, uh, it's generally used by people who are close to death and it's generally cancer. And then the next thing that's interesting to say is that it's not actually about pain, especially if you haven't got this sort of law on, uh, on the statute books in your own country, or if you haven't given it a great deal of thought, you think that this is about agony, terminal agonies. Well, we have got a lot of medication that can control pain, even very great pain towards the end. It's not always used as well as it may be. There are people who die in a great deal of pain. But actually, that's not the reason that's cited in any of the countries mostly. It's what you might call existential suffering, is what people talk about. So people say that they feel they've had their lives, their lives are over, and there's just a bit at the end that they now have to get through, and they don't want to. It's a bit where they're maybe lonely, where they feel pointless, Um, they may have uh, feelings of helplessness, of lack of control, lack of dignity. Um, If you are extremely ill, if you are close to death, as I mean, I'm not sure I'm not the only person here who has been close to somebody who's died. Um, most of us will have been. Um, you'll know that it's not just pain that people suffer from. So they suffer from knowing the situation, but they also suffer from many, many other indignities like constant exhaustion or not being able to control their bodily functions or you know, having permanently lost their appetite or being unable to just generally do anything, move... It's a great topic, this one, isn't it? I'm really, I really have them rolling in the aisles with this one. <laughs> um, so, 5% is 5% a lot. I, do you mind if I just ask you to put your hands up and it's, it's, tell me if you think 5% is a lot of all deaths to be assisted uh, suicides or assisted dying? So, yeah, okay, so some people are putting their hands up. Who thinks that it would probably end up even higher than that if the law... Okay, All right, I don't have to do much persuading then. (laughs) Um, People who are against assisted suicide, in particular doctors, so doctors' organisations in most places are actually against any of this sort of law. California's Medical Association has just dropped its opposition, in fact. But in the UK, the BMA, the British Medical Association, is very strongly opposed to introducing any such law. They say that um, it's not needed and they say it's not needed for several reasons, one being that palliative care can control suffering at the end of life. Now, is that so? Um, As I said, there are pain medications that one can use at the end of life, they aren't always used very effectively. So one of my colleagues, when we were preparing this material, did come by to say that she had just been to see an old friend who was in hospice and was very close to death from cancer. And it was quite clear that the pain was coming and going in waves and that he was quite inwardly focused trying to manage it. So, OK, maybe the medication is there, but maybe it's not always used as it might be. But the other thing that they say, doctors, is that... Um, so the other thing to say, I mean, about palliative care is that uh, it's not like that gets you where you want to be. Um, I talked to a British sociologist called Clive Seal, and he went to a talk by an, op- an opponent of assisted dying, and they said, well, if everyone was in hospice, the demand would vanish. And he thought, that's actually a question I can answer empirically. So he uh, surveyed people in British hospice who uh, had terminal cancer and also those in hospital who had terminal cancer. And he found that actually those in hospice were more likely to say that they would consider assisted suicide, were more likely to have researched it, and were more likely to say that they should be allowed to do it. And that's a very unexpected result. Why would that be... What he said in the end was that if you're in hospice, you're someone who's thinking about the situation, you're thinking about the fact that you are going to die and you've accepted that and you're planning, you've looked at your options, you've chosen hospice. Many people are in denial or they maybe haven't been, it hasn't been fully communicated to them that they are close to death. Those are the people who aren't going to think of assisted suicide. So it's not the case, if you hear it said that palliative care and hospice can take away the demand for assisted suicide, that's not actually true. Um, 5%, the other reason that I don't think 5% is very high is that doctors actually act all the time to hasten death. There's a, very, there's a wide range of ways they do that. Um, one way is by withholding or withdrawing uh, life-sustaining treatment. That may be very aggressive treatment, for example, if you're someone who's on a ventilator. Or it may be actually food and drink towards the end of life uh, are withheld. Uh, Second reason is that pain management, when the pain is very intense, can shorten life too. And correctly, doctors generally prioritise the management of the pain rather than the extension of the life. And the third reason is that in the last 10 or 15 years, a thing called terminal sedation has become much, much more commonly used. Um, This, towards the end of life... um, people aren't only in pain, they can sometimes be very distressed and unable to communicate what it is they want and confused, and it can come to the stage that there's really nothing much you can do for them except to calm them right down with sedative. And then this can be that this is something that just continues for a few days and the person sort of naturally slips away, and you may withhold food and drink during this as well. This is a way a lot of people die nowadays. Uh, I couldn't tell you any numbers because nobody has counted them. We don't have any good data on how people die where they are, we know where they are, mostly in hospital, more and more in hospital now, but we don't know how they die, how the decisions were made towards the end. Now, one of the great privileges of having written about this subject is that a lot of people have shared with me their knowledge and their experiences of -of end-of-life situations, I'd, I've never written anything that so many people have knocked on my office door or have sent me long emails about uh, or have decide, even phoned me to talk through things. And it has become clear to me that basically people either aren't thinking about this at all or they're thinking about it and actually quite strongly outraged, uh, have strong opinions on one side or the other. And if you forgive me, I have a sort of an analogy that maybe sounds tasteless to some of you, and that's childbirth. Um, if you go back about a century, in in Britain anyway, and I'm sure in a lot of other countries, you didn't talk about what childbirth was like, and women who had their first babies were often in quite significant ignorance about what was going to happen. I remember reading a book in which uh, a woman who had just had a baby was described, and I'll never forget the exact phrase that was used. It said that she was feeling a bit sorry for herself. (Laughter) So you, you really, you don't say. You've just, She's just gone through natural childbirth without any pain relief and you didn't tell her what was coming and now she's feeling a bit sorry for herself. So, you know, people were two camps. Either you knew what you were talking about, uh, possibly only too well. Um, no men were in this camp except a few doctors. Or you really didn't know. You might know that actually this is very dangerous. A lot of people, of course, used to die in childbirth. And we're kind of in that situation now, unfortunately, when it comes to the end of life. Because we don't do it at home anymore and because, thankfully, not so many children die anymore as they used to, most of us haven't seen it unless we've seen it. Do you know what I mean? Like either you know only too well how this isn't what you thought it was going to be like, or you actually just don't know. And the result is that those of us who don't know, well, we can say quite ignorant things and we can kind of shut ourselves off from thinking about this. So we did do some polling on attitudes to go with this editorial that we did in June. We polled people in 15 countries on their attitudes towards assisted dying. The results were very interesting, but maybe not quite what they seem on the headline. Australia was one of those countries, and you were very much like most of the rest of the countries we polled, which were European countries, U.S., Canada, Japan, Russia. Um, there were strong majorities in most countries in favour of legalising doctor-assisted dying in some form. Uh, I think Russia was the only country that there wasn't and Poland was borderline. Interestingly, we then said, well, how? So how do you want it to be legalised? Do you want the doctor to be allowed to give you the medicine or do you want to have to take it yourself? And about up to 10% of the like 10% of all people went, like, no, neither of those. It's like well, you've just said you wanted to legalise it. You don't want to do it anyway. So, first off, this just shows people aren't maybe thinking very hard about this issue. And we then asked them in what circumstances. So, very strong support for allowing people to have assisted dying um, in situations of intolerable physical suffering, not just pain, suffering. And then that support drops away when you talk about people who are under 18, and the younger you go, the more that the sport drops off, or people who are suffering mentally. Um, I want to address three specific questions that I think and that I know from experience, from the things that people have come and talked to me about, three specific questions that I know people find very hard. And one of them is this question of children, and one of them is the question of mental suffering. And the third question I want to really look at specifically is uh, whether allowing assisted dying in some form devalues what we might call difficult lives. So difficult lives meaning people who are disabled in some way. Are we saying that they're in some way less worthwhile human beings? I'll take them in this order. I think I'm going to talk about children first. So it seems that when those of us the population at large are asked, you know, do you think doctors should be allowed to help you die in some circumstances? People would sort of reflexively mostly say yes. And uh, I mean, I was talking about this just yesterday to somebody here. Um, It's like the way many of us sort of reflexively say, um, oh, I don't want to have to go into a nursing home or I don't want to die in hospital, just shoot me. I don't know if you've ever said that, but people really do say that. Or they say, you know, I just want me put down like a dog or something. <laughs> they really do say this. I'm not making this up. Um, I think that's showing, A, that the starting point is that people don't have an instinctive feeling that you shouldn't have control over this aspect of your lives, but B, that they're not thinking very hard, and C, that they don't want to. I mean, the fact is, no one is going to shoot you. No one is going to put you down when it comes to it. You may well die in hospital. You may well go into a nursing home. We all know this when we think about it because we see what happens when we look around us. And we don't want it. People don't want to die in hospital. They don't want to go into a nursing home. And they don't want the end of their lives to be very drawn out. But we feel powerless to stop it. And we don't know what to do about it. So we just don't talk about it and we don't think about it. We sort of cut it off by saying, oh, just put me down. And then on we go. Well, when it comes to kids, it's the other way around. Our reflexive, instinctive thing to say is, no, of course not, that's a terrible thing. How could you even think of shortening a child's life? It's the most awful thing. Well, the reason you might think about it is because children also suffer and die. And we all know this too, we just very badly don't want to think about it. I think the best thing about living now and not living a century ago is that very few children die. And there's literally nothing that development means that's more important than that. Sadly, a few still do. So children do get cancer, and they do die, and they do suffer. And if we say that in that situation, we would be willing to allow an adult to shorten the last few weeks, the last few days, I cannot see why we would stop a child from doing that. People say, well, how would you decide? They're children. Well, the fact is that when children are very, very ill and when they're dying, extremely difficult decisions already have to be made. Any child who's terminally ill, the decisions that have to be made already will have included when to stop trying treatments that have no chance of success or very little chance of success. They may have included deciding whether to try an amputation to see if that will stop the spread of an illness. All of these things will already have had to be decided, and we know... If you're a paediatrician, if you work in this end-of-life care for children, you already have a procedure for doing this. Things are decided between the children, the parent, and the doctor. They're decided on evidence, they're decided in discussion. Depending on the child's age or the situation of the parents, different weights are given to different people's opinions. I just don't see that there is a bright line between those already extremely difficult decisions and this last one. But the rest of us don't want to think about this because we're so lucky we don't have to. That's why I would argue for any law on assisted dying not to have a lower age limit, but I would of course say that the child had to be terminally ill. I'll explain why I wouldn't make that restriction for adults and why I would for children. So the second one is this idea of mental suffering. Clearly people from the polling results are very, very uncomfortable with the idea of allowing doctor-assisted dying for people who are suffering mentally rather than physically. I think there's a lot of reasons for that and some of them are rather good ones. I think the good reason is that, again, one thing we all know and maybe we've started to talk about more recently but still don't talk about enough is a lot of people will go through a depressive patch at some point in their lives. Depression is really common. And most of us who go through depression, we come out of it and we're glad to be alive again. And most people who try to kill themselves and fail are glad they failed and don't try again. So what we're afraid of is, normalising suicide in any way or helping people to do something that if they could just have been helped to just cope for a little bit longer, they'd have come out at the other end and they'd be glad that we'd helped them. This is very hard to answer. I mean, these, these are good points, genuinely. You do not want people at the very low point of something that's going to turn around, making a decision that obviously is, a, is one they can traverse. And you don't want to normalise the idea that uh, suicide is just, you know, something that you might consider doing or that it's even brave or that you... I mean, suicide, uh, people who are suicidal or depressed often say they're a burden on other people. You don't want them to think that being a burden means you should get rid of yourself and not be that burden anymore. But then on the other hand, if you're suffering physically but not suffering mentally, I'm not even sure what that means. And suffering is mental. If you're not suffering mentally, you're not suffering. It's something that's experienced. It's something that's lived. And you can arguably, the law in Oregon, which is very strict on this, if you show, you, you must be interviewed and they must decide that you're not, you're not mentally ill, in particular that you're not depressed. If you're depressed, they won't give you the medication. And a lot of people are turned away on this ground. So there's a strange situation whereby, if you're terminally ill, probably with cancer, uh, that's what most of the people who use the law in Oregon are, but you're coping unbelievably well and you're able to be really cheerful when you're interviewed by the doctor, they'll give you the medication. (laughs) But if, you know, if this is the moment at which you realise that everything, you know, that your life wasn't what you'd hoped it to be, that um, now it's over and you sink into just despair, they won't give you the medication. So, uh, Again, I'd be very interested in hearing what you think about this. Do you think that it's possible? I do, but do you think it's possible to draw a law, to to, to draw the boundaries or to have procedures for a law that doesn't in any way normalise suicide for people who are in a transient state of suffering, but not lock out people who are in, I think, what must be the most appalling situation, you know, to be terminally ill and to feel despair and to be turned away because you feel despair. I think here to address um, two issues that came up when I was doing my reporting and when I was talking to colleagues about all of this and the first one is why doctors why doctors we want to help and, and the second one is why suffering at all why are we talking about suffering here so there's a, a member of our house of lords in the UK Laura allora Finley Baroness Alora Finley who's uh, very senior um, doctor, she's either still currently the president of the British Medical Association, or she may just have finished her term as president, I'm not sure. And she's a very strong opponent of uh, any sort of assisted suicide legislation. Um, I interviewed her for the piece, and her her opinions are important because she is a palliative care specialist, so she has been with a lot of people when they've died. And she's against the whole idea for several reasons, but specifically she says that doctors shouldn't be in this role. Doctors are people that we give a great deal of authority to, and they're, um, they're listened to with great attention, and they're listened to for what they don't say as well as for what they do say. So she says often people say to their doctors things like, um, you know, oh, just put me down now. This put me down is such a theme. And what they want is they want the doctor to say, no, it's not that bad. No, I can help you. No, I can make sure that you don't suffer pain. They're eliciting, They're they're afraid to just ask you. They're afraid to just say, how bad is this going to get? How long do I have? They maybe don't think they're going to get an honest answer. Um, They're very afraid. They want comfort from you. But she says that if you are going to allow anything in the way of assisted suicide, it should not be the doctor. It should be done through the court system. You could go, for example, to the family courts and you could say, I fit within the terms of the legislation, whatever the legislation is, and then the court could order a prescription to be written from you, which you could pick up from some depot or something. I don't think this works. And the reason I don't think it works, well, you're able to kill yourself yourself. You don't have to go to anyone, I know that. But we control lethal substances, and the way that we control them is via our doctors. Doctors are specifically the people who are allowed to prescribe things that the rest of us can't get without a doctor's prescription. So in a world where we had no doctors and we had no medical profession, you would just be able to go and get the poison. I mean, that's what Juliet did when she wanted to die because Romeo didn't love her anymore. She just went and got poison. We can't do that because doctors are there to do that. So I think you have to do it via doctors. And the other one is, who else is talking to you about what your options are? Like, who else is going to tell you what your situation is? I understand this business that patients are afraid to talk to their doctors, but I think that comes back to the more general problem, that we do not talk enough about death, we are not open enough about this. That has to change. I totally agree about that. So that's my answer to the why doctors. Now, the why suffering, this one was quite an interesting one. So when we... I've been working on this article for months and months. I was asked to... um, to coordinate correspondence around the world and to put together the reporting and then to write the leader with it. Um, And then towards, you know, when we knew we had a a date for publication, um, it was discussed in one of our editorial meetings in London. And anyone can go. Everyone's expected to go, really. And anyone can chip in. And so I laid out the the line of which what, what, what I wanted to write in The Leader, and I was very heavy on the personal choice and autonomy and this being very much The Economist's values. And one of my colleagues, a young economist, he said, Helen, I don't understand the role of suffering at all in the argument you've made. And I'm, I'm sorry, this is, a bit, um, this is a bit flippant of him, but what he really said was he said, um, you know, I might be feeling very down about the state of Greece's economy. And I say, <laughs> I say to myself, I'm just I'm going to kill myself. I feel so down about that. Why would I not be allowed to go to a doctor and ask for a prescription in that situation? And of course nobody does this. It's it's, it's a hypothetical, but it it actually gave me pause and I thought, I'm I'm not sure what the role for suffering is in this argument or what the role for suffering is in the legislation. I mean, yes, people are going to use this because they're suffering, but why do we need to say that? And I came back to him afterwards having thought about it and I said, um, totally apart from the argument that the people who will use this are the people who are suffering, it's that We have said, yes, you can kill yourself. That which we we got rid of these laws that say suicide is a criminal act. But now we're talking about something more, which is the state sanctioning it and society saying that we're going to help you in some way, that we're not only not going to stand in your way, but we are going to help you. We do have a right to say in what circumstances we're willing to do that. And we do have a right to write in the legislation what we think Uh, is is sort of reasonable or natural here. And also, this issue of not normalising suicide or making it more likely that people who are in transient states of despair will use the legislation. I think by writing the law, you you can help to frame that understanding. It was an interesting question, though. Some clever colleagues. Um, The third one I wanted to discuss was this issue of whether allowing doctor-assisted dying in some way, devalues some people's lives compared with other ones. So, the people who have been most vocal in favour of doctor-assisted dying and the people who've gone to court or the people who have become campaigners on this are very often people with very, stru- very, very severe disabilities. That's not who uses the legislation most, that's really about terminal cancer, but the most heart-rending cases are people, for example, with motor neurone disease. And these are people who know, who can see ahead of them, who know that their condition is going to deteriorate. Mentally, they're still going to be fine, but a point is going to come when they are completely physically disabled, uh, paralysed from the neck down, possibly, possibly unable to speak, and that then they will die rather slowly over some time after this. And they know if they wait, they're not going to be able to do anything about it themselves. <laughs> so quite tragically, some people in this situation have gone early to, to Switzerland, from the UK and from other countries, and um, because they're afraid of leaving it too late. So they've wasted and lost a part of the life that they still could have had, which I think is quite appalling. Well, what about people who are in that sort of situation who don't want to die? If we write down in the law any way, any sort of set of conditions in which we think it would be reasonable to help you, and we write down, you know, that your life is very difficult, that um, you're severely physically disabled or something, are we saying... Yeah, we know why someone like that would want to die. That is a a lesser life. And where, you know, if you are paralysed, we will help you to die. If you're not paralysed, we won't. Are we by doing that saying that paralysed people are less valuable in some sense? And some, some people feel like that, they feel very strongly. In particular, a lot of disabled organisations campaign against any assisted dying laws. And that's, that's exactly the argument that they use, that it's, it's lessening their value. It's, it's, it's saying that they're less worthwhile people. Against that, interestingly, a lot of disabled people totally disagree. So we didn't poll separately for disabled people, but some countries have... Ask disabled people specifically as a subgroup within people more generally what they think, and they don't find there's lesser support. And some rather high-profile disabled people themselves have spoken out on this, and Stephen Hawking being an example. So he rather recently said that, um, to keep someone alive against their wishes seems to me to be the ultimate indignity. That was his take on it. Um, He says he doesn't want to kill himself now. He's got uh, plenty of physics still to do, but that if he runs out of ideas and feels like there's nothing left for him, he could really imagine that. I had the great privilege of interviewing uh, a man called Stephen Fletcher for this article. He's a Canadian MP. And 19 years ago, uh, he had what he calls his quintessentially Canadian accident. When he was 23, his car ran into a moose and he broke his neck. And he was, for several months, unable to even breathe unaided, unable to speak, unable to communicate, except by blinking. Uh, He is now able to breathe and he's able to speak, but he is still paralysed from the neck down. Since he had his accident, he became an MP. He became a minister. He was transport minister for a couple of years in Canada, and he has campaigned for assisted dying. He has been putting forward a private member's bill. I I think it's out of time now, but Canada's actually going to have assisted dying quite soon anyway because of a Supreme Court decision. So his, his point was that he looks back at those first terrible months when he was completely unable to do anything, even breathe, or unaided. And that's the situation that somebody with motor neurone disease knows is ahead of them. And he still had hope. He was told that there was hope that it would improve, and in fact it did. But if he'd had no hope, he didn't go so far as to say that he would definitely have used it. But he said he should have had the option. That option should have been there for him. So different people in the same circumstances who make profoundly different decisions. I don't think any of us know what we'd do if we were in that situation. I mean, I've asked quite a lot of people, I've told quite a lot of people Stephen Fletcher's story, and people, most people say, oh, I'd want to die. Actually, they're wrong. It's amazing. Uh, We know from people who have had very life-threatening injuries that have, have drastically changed their physical level of ability. People say beforehand, oh, I could never be happy again, or I would want to die. Actually, a year after the accident, it's quite astounding how people are sort of back to their own selves. So you don't know until it happens to you, but different people make very different decisions in these situations. It looks very different to different people. There isn't an abstract stuff called life that we have to defend or protect or hold sacred there are only individual lived lives and those lives are lived by individual people who feel different about things I know that sounds trite but do you know the way it is when you spend several months thinking about something you often circle back to something that you could have said at the beginning ah you know people are different and you realize yes they really are different that's incredible wow now I know it so um, I'm glad I'm getting you to laugh still at the end of this talk. I think that really is a great, um, a great thing I've managed to do there. So I'm going to tell you a really down story now. <laughs> the story that I found absolutely hardest, absolutely most heartbreaking in, in all of this. I cried quite a lot when I was writing this article. I'm not ashamed to say I did have some snivelling sessions. So um, a young man called Dan James, Daniel James in the UK, he um, broke his neck when he was 22 in a rugby scrum. And he really was not able to reconcile himself in any way to this. Um, I think he had a little bit of movement left and he did try whenever he was given any opportunity to kill himself. But he wasn't able to. And a year after his accident, his parents, when he was 23, accompanied him to Switzerland and stayed with him while he killed himself. Uh, he died. And I mentioned this in the article. So. When we file our articles, they go into a a shared system that anyone can go into, and people are encouraged to have a look if it's a subject they're interested in, and they maybe come by the author's door or the editor's door and make comments if there was a bit they didn't understand or that they felt needed more clarification. And one of my colleagues stopped by and he said, "Um, you're just going to have to give more details about that Dan James story because it's completely mad. Those are the words he used, completely mad. He said, obviously, he was seriously depressed, he needed treatment. What were his parents thinking? And then he said some sort of more unkind things about the parents. And then about a half an hour later, another colleague came by and she shared with me some stories that she knew personally. And I said to her, what did you think of the Dan James story? And she said, I'd have gone with him. If he was my son, I'd have gone with him. And because we don't talk about all of this, we don't talk about death, and we don't talk about what you would do in these terrible circumstances, each of us thinks that our position is the natural position. It's it's like we didn't talk about abortion or childbirth or any of these things, and I don't know that talking about it changes your mind, but it does at least open your eyes to the fact that other people feel profoundly different about these things. I mean, I don't know what it's like here, but do women columnists here write about their childbirth experiences in a very censorious way and say that other women made stupid choices and, you know, either that they're, you know, hippies who wear sandals and eat yoghurt and muesli, you know, if they wanted a natural childbirth, or that they're too posh to push if they said they wanted to have (laughs) caesareans. Because we do this a bit in, in Britain, and they do it in the US as well, and... There's recently been a few women who've called for a truce on this one, so when a woman tells you about her water birth and her, you know, her ball that she used to rotate her hips and so on, you know, and this all sounds awful to you because you had an epidural and that was the best thing ever, you know, you don't say anything except, good for you, not for me. So, we know now that people feel differently about these things and we, because we've talked about it. so. What do I want you guys to do? What does The Economist want you to do? We're campaigning on this. Well, we think the law should be changed. That's what our campaign is. But before that, and, and importantly for that, I think we need to just start talking more about death and talking about the fact that we are all going to die. It's not going to be that easy for most of us at the end. You know, what, what are we going to do as a society to make it better? Not just easier, but better. You know, a death can be a good death. That is a possibility. If you have someone you want to talk to about this, I highly recommend Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. He's a doctor who's a profoundly beautiful thinker and writer. And I've used the book myself in difficult conversations with, with family members. It's amazing how you can talk about these things and how grateful people are who've been alone and worried and who feel they, they, they can't talk about it, how grateful they are if you maybe are able to find a good way to start a conversation. So that's what I'd ask you to do, to talk, to find out what other people think, to get better informed about this and to start a conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed for that, Helen, thank you. For me, the the whole issue is one about compassion for people who are suffering and about respect for the autonomy of individuals. And of course, the desire that one might have oneself for the option at least uh, later on. So these are very important points. Now, this is going to be an opportunity for the audience to ask you some questions about this, but I'll kick off with, with one. And I should just mention to people, by the way, that there are microphones down at the front. If you'd like to ask a question, please come down and form a little queue with the microphones. Um, There are many, many things to talk about, but one thing that rather interests me is the attitude of medical professionals Mm. to this. You mentioned the fact that the BMA in the UK is is opposed to it. Um, One comment and one question. The the comment is um, why isn't it uh, open uh, to us to include in this debate the suggestion that there should be a medical specialism, mm. which, such that perhaps a, a, an might have a subspecialism specialism of, of what you might call fanatology, let's mm. say, so that the great majority of people working in medicine can continue to dedicate themselves to caring or to curing whenever possible and not to be involved in this. So that would be a, a, a matter of conscience and there could be a specialism. That might be one solution to that problem. But the question is this. Shouldn't we uh, say, let us have a a moratorium on uh, or or a a kind of retrospective uh, amnesty on medical professionals who have helped people to die in the past so that we can find out exactly what proportion of deaths in hospital have been the result of some some intervention, Mm. some conscious assistance Mm. to people who really are Mm. suffering, because it may well be above the 5% that Mm. you mentioned.
1: I'm sure it is. I don't know that doctors are honest always, even to themselves, and that's no insult on doctors. All of us, the way we remember what we did and the choices that we made, we, we maybe don't remember so accurately that, you know, we maybe are a little flattering to ourselves. And when something has been illegal, even if you say, and I'm not now not going to prosecute it, I'm not sure you'd elicit terribly accurate memories. There have been some anonymous surveys of doctors, and even in countries where... Absolutely, there's just no flexibility on this at all. There are always a few percent of doctors who say that they have done it. Um, And I mean, some of the practices that doctors do totally legally, totally ethically, you know, within the boundaries of what they expect to do in their profession, you know, we don't know about them and we maybe aren't that comfortable about them in fact. I'm not sure I would prefer when it comes to the end for me. I'm not sure I'd prefer to be sort of, you know, sedated because I have become so disturbed and so distressed, and then slip away without saying goodbye. But that's, that's what doctors do in large numbers. That's what they help them to do. On the specialism, I'm sure it'll come to be the case that not all doctors are happy with this. But, you know, when you have a doctor, that doctor is there for you. Uh, they're not there for themselves. They're there for you. That sounds rather hard word to say, but I don't think that just referring somebody to somebody else is really the answer. I think that they need to be there for you, for what you want to do. Well,
0: thank you for that. Let's start with uh, microphone number two.
1: Hi. Thank you very much for an amazing speech. My question is a little bit from the, the point of view of the impact of suicide that goes so bad and then the impact of the organisation, the, like the police and the medical profession that have to clean up after this, um, the more... Uh, severe ways that people take their own lives Mm. and did you look at anything in your studies around writing this article around what was the correlation for the introduction of an euthanasia or Mm. uh, assisted suicide with a decrease in uh, Mm. violent suicides I guess? I tried, I looked to see what had been done and I didn't find any figures that I thought were um, reliable. Suicide rates vary a lot around the world and the thing that as far as I know they vary with most is the accessibility of guns. So that's such a confounding factor, that anywhere that people can get hold of guns, they, they kill themselves more than places they don't. Uh, you're absolutely right, of course, that suicide is just the most atrocious impact on the professionals who deal with it and the families who are left behind. Um, I don't know if it'll make it more likely or less. My instinct is that it would make it less likely surely, and that it would allow people to maybe talk to their families beforehand, talk about their decisions, make these decisions jointly. I don't know. I don't think anyone can tell you they know, but thank you for the question. Microphone one. Yeah. I was just wondering if you have experience with advanced care directives. It Mm. seems a lot of people are not particularly aware of that Mm. option until Mm. perhaps laws change anyway, but it's something you never hear about Mm -hmm. um, unless somebody has put you onto it, so. So, there are two important things to say about advanced directives. This is where in advance you say what you want to happen in certain situations. One is I think they're a thoroughly good thing and they're a good thing partly because they get you to think about these things in advance, to talk about them and not to be making a decision in in ignorance and, you know, maybe to explain what you want to the people around you. And in this, you know, this culture where we all pretend that we're immortal, that's already a good thing to break that. But the other one is actually you don't know until it happens to you in a lot of circumstances. So I think, sadly, a lot of us would write, you know, and if I'm paralysed, I want to die. Actually, you probably wouldn't. So they don't answer everything.
0: Thank you for that. There's a long queue on that mic, so I'll take another one from there first. Go on.
2: Uh, Thank you for your talk. Um, My question regards mental illness. You addressed um, depression, but I was wondering if you had any comment on other mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, which are generally not transient and can cause a huge amount of suffering, should they be allowed access to assisted suicide?
1: Thank you for asking me that for several reasons, the main one being that I meant to mention this, so thank you. (laughs) Um, I think that we simply have to restrict this law to people who are competent to make the decision. It's not that you couldn't want to die and be suffering so much that we could understand that decision and not be competent to make the decision. That's possible. I I just think we can't do it any other way. It must be that if you were to use this sort of law, you are competent to decide. Sadly, you probably won't be in the sort of situation that you're describing. So there's a suffering I can't touch and I can't help, and it's a terrible suffering too. Thank you.
0: Very briefly, do you have a view about that?
2: I have very mixed feelings about it. I think it's a very complicated situation because, like you say, they don't have the capacity necessarily to decide. Um, but that said, the suffering that yeah. someone with schizophrenia can go through can be huge. So yes. So
1: it's, it's a complicated situation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I'm you, completely you. in agreement. Yeah. Back
2: to you. You mentioned there's broad public support for assisted suicide. Um, I yeah. think in New South Wales a proposition was put up in the last year or two. And I think it was quite
1: roundly knocked on the head Mm. Uh, in Parliament, mm-hmm. um if there's this broad support, but most states in Australia seem to ha- be not interested in passing laws, what are the main roadblocks from getting a law passed, if you can comment sort of generally on that? Political cowardliness is the answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> back. That one. Is there just, there's just no votes in it for them? They say, look, sure, some people approve of it, but no one's going to sway their vote our way if A few people are going to sway their votes and they're the people who are against. It's the same for abortion in the States. Uh, Well, actually, less less in the States because now it's become so polarised, there's there's problems both ways. But generally, politicians devoutly wish this and other difficult issues would just go away. Stop talking about it so we can get on with it. That's their feeling and it's just, it's cowardliness. So you need to lobby. You need to talk. You need to get your politicians to get this one to pay attention. Absolutely, Mike. One, thank you. Hi. Um, I've been having this conversation a lot with friends, just just right to die and that sort of thing, mainly because of um, Sir Terry Pratchett just recently yes. and his advocacy. Um, the anecdotal response that I get from a lot of people who against uh, the argument is that in countries like the Netherlands, there's a lot of family pressure to shuffle off yep. wealthy. Um, ill yeah. people. Is there, I don't know how you'd possibly measure anything like that, but is there any evidence to support that whatsoever? That's certainly one of the arguments that they, the opponents use all the time. I don't think there's any evidence for it. Um, it's extremely difficult to, to get that evidence because who's going to know, who's going to find out? In, in Oregon, the doctor must actually say that they think that there is, that isn't the situation. I can't imagine how they're meant to know. I, I would... If I can, if you allow me a sort of, one of my sort of, you know, very implausible detours here. Another one of the subjects that I've had to write a leader on in the last year is prostitution, our argument that, um, that it should be, be decriminalised. And people who are against decriminalising prostitution, they often say, but you know, people are pushed into it by their terrible circumstances, you know. Um, I mean, this is very true, a lot of women who are prostitutes, the reason is because all their other options are even worse. And I stop and I think, well, if all their other options are worse, what on earth are you doing helping them by taking away what they've now decided is their best of their many terrible options? Mm-hmm. If I, am, when I'm old, I'm in a situation that seriously my children want me to die so they can get my uh, whatever, whatever measly things I'm going to have left behind me. <laughs> um, you know, anyway, um, I, I don't think that my life is so amazing. You know, that, that, that's not my biggest problem, that's what I'm trying to say. If my children are trying to shuffle me off, my biggest problem isn't whether the law allows them to or not. It's that my children are trying to shuffle me off.
0: <laughs> because there's a long queue, I'm just going yeah. to... Next, next person. It's a bit like traffic lights, you know. <laughs>
2: Hi there. Yes. Um, Part of my question's already been asked by someone from the other side. I'm Sarah Edelman, President of Dying with Dignity in New South Wales, and um, prior to the New South Wales election, we actually polled New South Wales politicians throughout the state and asked for their view on voluntary assisted dying, and only 20% were willing to say that they were in favour and would support a view. And the the, the fact is that most of these, or many of these people would personally be affected in some way with, with loved ones and so on. We're just wondering, is there any way that we can get some of the people, particularly from the right side of politics, which are predominantly opposed to any sort of change in the law, to get them onto, on side. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a hard question.
1: God, we could ask that about so many political issues, couldn't we? I mean, how do we get politicians to change their mind? You know, when they, 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 they in the end, they, they do tend to come around and they realise that they're on the losing side. Don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to organise, we have to talk, we have to say what we think. Politely, but you know, but clearly.
2: Maybe we just need an overwhelming uh, an amount of public support and outcry yeah, yeah. on this issue.
1: We need to get organised and get uh, get knowledgeable about this. Mm.
0: If if the, if, the, if Helen had an answer to the question that you asked her about any issue in our society, she could bottle it, sell it, and boy, she she'd be I know. Rich.
1: Then, then <laughs> my then children then really want want children wouldn't want to shuffle me off.
2: Do accept that the state has
0: some role to play in regulating the end of human life? And if you accept that premise, what should the ideal nature of that role be, and through the
1: state, the courts? That's such a big question, isn't it? Sorry, it's huge. Up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to just sort of answer in a, narrow, in a narrow way, otherwise we could just, you know, have another entire event about this one, couldn't we? Um, the state does have a role and, I mean, that's a factual matter. For example, in just having controlled substances, the very idea that there are controlled substances means that, you know, we think that there are things that people shouldn't be just allowed free access to. We're hedged in in many ways in our modern lives. It's what a society is. It's, it's, a, it's a collective endeavour that limits all of us for our better good in some ways. I think when it comes to these very personal matters that people feel so profoundly differently from each other about for reasons that are rather hard to see from the outside. Like, why does one woman want a natural childbirth and another an epidural? You know, why is it so obvious to one person that you'd want the last bit of life, even if you were paralysed from the neck down, and so obvious to another that you wouldn't? Those are the moments when I think the state has to really step back as far as it can. As far as it can for everybody's safety, you know, yes, it can say that not if you're mentally incompetent, not if you're a child, you know, not if we've reason to think that you're being pressured, but really should err on the side of stepping back because people are just so different. I hope that helps as an answer. I'm sorry it was such a small answer to such a big question.
0: Look, I'm terribly sorry, but it says zero seconds left yes. on, the, on the clock. <laughs> come and uh, talk I'm, I'm to, have me? to I'm going to have to stop you. Do, I'm, I'm sure Helen will be, yeah, will be around. will be around. So do, do come, come and ask. Can, can I compliment you on some excellent questions? Yes. Thank you very much for that. And uh, can I s- say to Helen... <laughs> thank you, thank you. And, uh, I, just, I just want to say to Helen that that was a, a wonderfully lucid and, and cogent statement of the case... Uh, And uh, thank you very much for it.
1: Well, thank you for listening.